Hello and welcome to Misbehave, the podcast where we explore human behavior in a business context. Season two of Misbehave is all about uncovering behavioral patterns which create success in life and business. We're joined by highly driven, accomplished individuals to assess their behavioral patterns and dive into how behaviors have influenced their journey. In this episode, we welcome serial entrepreneur Rebecca Hartley. Rebecca is the founder and director of Saving Grace Events. Her career includes over 20 years of corporate experience working for well-known brands, including Virgin Media and The Co-op Group. She now candidly shares her journey of navigating through the peaks and troughs of her personal and professional life, including overcoming devastating loss, the value of listening to your gut in high-impact business decisions, and the pros and cons of diversification. Welcome, Rebecca. We're so excited to have you with us today. Just to sort of kick off, can you give us a little bit of a summary of your journey up to now? Yeah, of course. So as of today, I'm 45 years old. (laughs) Um, I'm a single mother to a teenage boy, 16-year-old, which brings with it its own challenges in my personal life. From a career point of view, I started my career more in the corporate world, really, mainly working in client-facing roles and kind of working my way up to director level. The latter part of my career in working for somebody else was in customer experience, which is intrinsically linked to employee experience. So so working in customer experience, doing kind of transformational stuff across sales channels for the likes of Virgin Media. And I then went to work for an outsourcer as um, one of the senior management teams, senior leadership team as a director, doing a similar kind of thing and some commercial stuff as well. And whilst I was there, I found out that I had breast cancer at 37. So that kind of threw a spanner in the works. I thought I had it figured out at that point. And um, obviously things changed and went off piece a little. And I had kind of an 18 month period of, of still working, but also going through some quite grueling treatment from chemotherapy to right through to kind of um, operations that one step to me so that was quite a long process and when I came back from that went back into the same role but then really had a bit of an, an epiphany I mean I'd, I'd actually gone into that role thinking this is the last time I'm ever going to work for anybody else I really want to do something for myself and I kind of went into it intentionally as a sl- smaller business and Virgin Media thinking this is a great opportunity to learn about a business um, to learn to be in the senior team to see all aspects of it in kind of preparation really for me setting up my own business but I wasn't expecting that to happen so so soon so yeah came back from my treatment and decided that actually this is not what I want to be doing it isn't the business I want to be working in it isn't aligned with my values and it isn't the work that I want to be doing so left and set up what is now Saving Grace Events And I've been running Saving Grace events for six years. I mean, I'm sure we'll get into this, but it didn't start off as an events company. There was a link between the kind of customer employee experience and what I did initially. And it was an an evolution over time, but kind of brings us to present day. And that's really interesting, isn't it? Because I think I think you go through big life events. And I was actually listening to another podcast that you did you did. And it changes your perspective, doesn't it? It sort of realigns you. It gives you that moment of clarity where it's like, you know what? Is this making me happy? Is that is this something that I want to be doing? Talk us through a little bit what where that because you said that you know when you took that job you'd almost decided that that was going to be your last job before you ran your own company. What was what was that change in thought process? Did that I'm guessing that that speeded up that seeding thought in your head with that experience that you went through with breast cancer? Yeah, it really did, and I don't even I couldn't I couldn't probably even tell you. Maybe you can tell me more, having seen my results. What kind of brought me to a point of 
having in my head that I wanted this was the last job I was going to take for somebody else. But I'd, I'd, I'd for a long time at least wanted to have my own business, just didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. Um, and yeah, you're absolutely right. Coming out of that treatment process, I mean, I had a lot of time to think, but coming out of that, I definitely realized and knew that life was short and I couldn't take anything for granted and you know tomorrow and tomorrow manana manana might never come so I wanted to take action and also just I wanted to do something that fulfilled me and that made me happy I was very aware going into that job I went for the money <laughs> I was a single parent the yeah. director over there was somebody I had worked with previously and he'd he'd approached me many times to join the business and my hesitancy was that I worked for Virgin Media I was very aligned with their values I loved working for them I loved what they were about loved how they treated their people then went to work for a very different kind of business that just didn't resonate with me on that level at all and my values are really important to me so it kind of jarred with me being there and I was there for I understood my reasons. I knew it would be a net benefit to me and my son. But yeah, I think all of those things combined when I came back from my treatment were just, I don't want to do this anymore. And and, and in honesty, they were fantastic. So Jamie, my boss over there at the time, he said, why? I mean, I didn't come back from my um, from being off sick and immediately had my notice in, but it was maybe six or eight months later. And he said, why are you leaving? And I said, because I want to do something for myself. And he was like, well, what is it you want to do? I said, I don't know. I just know I want to do something for myself. And he said, well, that's ridiculous. Like, why would you leave when you can stay here? I'll support you. Um, you can work through what it is that you want to do. And, and that's how we did it, really. So I was really fortunate to have that opportunity and him supporting me. And, you know, he's a serial entrepreneur as well, has multiple businesses. So we got it. Amazing. And it's interesting, Rebecca, because sometimes you make decisions in your career because needs must. And sometimes it's like, and that's like, that's the reality of life, right? Like it's, if you've got, if you're supporting someone, you know, if you've got a, a change in circumstances where that has to be a top priority for a period of time. But I think you're right, looking at your patterns, there's two that are pretty dominant that this need like your really high choices and that generally means that you like variety change flexibility to do things the way you want to do them and when you want to do them you'll respond well to fastballs and things that are thrown your way and then you also high initiation which means you have like you want to dive in get started your pace will be quick and sometimes when you work for someone else those two areas you don't have full rain on on what you choose to do and how you do it Mm -hmm. so sometimes that can be almost a subconscious driver like you didn't even know but I think there's also like sometimes in entrepreneurial people there's a there's a something there that doesn't always come out straight away you know even for me like I I you know joined Duo and 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 joined Laura in in our business like in my early 40s. So it's not, you know, it, it doesn't, your journey is your journey, isn't it? It doesn't mean that if you're entrepreneurial, it doesn't mean it always comes to fruition straight away. Yeah, absolutely. When I joined Virgin Media, I joined to set up their quality and customer experience function for their sales channels. And it was a brand new function. They didn't have anything in place, which is 
quite unbelievable, really, for when I joined, but they didn't. So I had a new area that I was looking after. So I built the team, I built the processes, I built the strategy. And it was almost like it was my own little business. And my dad always said to me, he thought that that was the catalyst, really, for me really deciding, because I had full autonomy over what I was doing. So I was almost running a business within a business. And I think that was maybe the trigger that started that thought pattern. And yeah. That's usually, and that usually is the case. That was the case for me when I started Jewel. There was, I moved to the US and set up a business for someone else. And it was almost like, hang on a second, like, why am I running a business for someone else? I'm doing all the stuff that I would do if I owned this business. So I think that does. And because you've got the patterns that when, when people talk about in business, like, oh, we want people to think more entrepreneurial, or we want people to think about this business like it's their business it's the patterns that you've got that allow somebody to do that. You know, somebody who has that bias for action, who likes to jump between lots of different things and doesn't need to almost have a set way of doing things or have all the detail to be able to execute something. That's really what they're talking about. So you would have been using what sounds like a lot of those entrepreneurial behaviors that are just natural in your behavioral profile that probably led you kept you satisfied up to that point but then it was like okay I need more now like this this needs to look different for me. So Rebecca it would be great if you could tell us a little bit about the different businesses that you run and just elaborate for the listeners to understand a bit more about um, where you're at now. Yeah. So my main business is Saving Grace Events. So we um, are what I would call a full service agency. So we do everything from the creative design, which is my favorite bit, kind of dreaming up what an event's going to look like and the technical design right through to all the project management, pulling it all together and running the events the other end. Our client base is mainly corporate. I always say we work with fun, innovative, people-driven businesses. They fit our, um, our own brand personality and values and they allow us to get really creative. So we work with some really great brands like Five Guys, Virgin Media, and then some lesser known brands as well that um, are just kind of niche within their areas. That's my, that's our main business. During the pandemic, obviously, that was a challenge for a business that we're now six years old this month. So we launched a socially distanced festival, which we ran for two years and yeah, that was a, a roller coaster, kind of a million pound turnover within five months, similar in year two. But yeah, huge operations. We did 86 events across the two years, 40,000 people through the gates. Wow. But it's, um, it's, a, it's a big business in its own right and brought with it its own challenges, which I'm sure we'll get into on this podcast. And we're now back kind of post-pandemic to running Saving Grace against as our, our core business. I'm also co-director of a kind of luxury venue called the Barlaston Estate over in Staffordshire on the Wedgwood Estate. So I run that with the owners of the property and we do um, largely weddings over there. Tell us a little bit about the best event you've ever organised. So, And what goes into pulling off like an amazing event? What's been the best thing? Well, by far and away, the best events that we organise are for five guys. So they are our biggest client. Um and um, one of our favorite clients. Um, so we do quite a few events for them now. We do have a big UK event for their assistant managers, but the kind of flagship event that we do is a three-day international event for all of their general managers from across Europe. So we take um, what will be nearly 
um, 600 people this year to another country from five different countries. So we do travel, accommodation, um, we do an awards dinner, we do a conference, excursions and a big wrap party. So they are almost our perfect client profile in that, A, we get to do pretty much every event type that we would do for them in one event. B, it's international. Um, but C, they are our perfect profile of fun, innovative and people driven clients. So they're amazing to work with and we can get really, really creative with them. As I mentioned before, that's a big thing for me. You know, our worst event would be a really boring grey conference. Um, we love getting <laughs> clients. So yeah, that's an in- incredible event. And actually we, that, that client came on board, um, kind of halfway through our journey from to where we are now. So when we won five guys as a client, when we got the opportunity to to um, bid for it and when we won it, it was like unbelievable to me that we'd won a client of that kind of size and scale and level and that they were asking us to do what we've we've done. But it was also a real confidence booster. So I love the fact that they're they've been part of our journey. We now do multiple events for them. Uh, we've already got our 2024 events booked in with them, even though we haven't delivered 2023s. So yeah, that's our that's our biggest, best and perfect event. And that's taken us to Budapest, Croatia, Ibiza. Uh, we're looking at 2024 um, destinations now. So yeah, a gift, a gift to us, essentially. An absolute Amazing. gift, yeah. <laughs> you know that that in itself speaks to your to your behaviors that that choices piece for you that that flexibility the lots of different things going on at any one time and I heard you talking about the the festival and sort of like some of the catalysts for setting that up talk us through that a little bit that obviously you had this business you had saving grace you know you were I'm sure busy with that what was sort of that catalyst point for you that thought you know what we need to get into the festival business or even just you know what were the circumstances surrounding that yeah I feel like I come up with these crazy ideas for no reason I mean the first event that I did was <laughs> nearly a decade ago now I was working for Virgin Media and just decided we were going to do a charity ball for no reason I don't know I don't even know where it came from other than I loved events but yeah the festival was another one of my hairbrain schemes but with kind of um some some foundations behind it I guess so we were busy um, but obviously we had a pandemic so we weren't doing a lot of live events we were doing virtual events we're really fortunate that we've got corporate customers and they needed to communicate with their people so we were doing quite a lot of studio-based live events which were great um, I'd seen you know not nothing too exciting behind it really I'd seen a couple of events elsewhere and thought socially distanced events and thought we could do something like this, but we could really do it better. And wouldn't it be amazing if we could do it against the backdrop of the lake at Tatton Park? It would be stunning. And kind of curated it from there. Um, so I think we, um, I approached Tatton and said, you know, could we do it here? And they made a decision by, I think, the end of February that we could. And then by April, we had tickets on sale, which if for anyone that knows anything about the festival world or public ticketed events is absolutely ridiculous. Um, but <laughs> Unheard somehow, of. <laughs> somehow we managed to pull it off. And like I said, we had um, about 20,000 people come through the gates in year one so it was and yeah it was a, it was a real roller coaster some absolutely fantastic things about it but it was also probably one of the most stressful things that I've ever done in my life so 
Yeah, and everybody everybody was on that crazy journey with me, which I'm sure kind of plays into some of the things that you've seen from my profile as well. Yeah, and that's just what I was going to say, because that, you know, when you said that's a crazy goal, it's like, but that's not a crazy goal for someone with your behavioral patterns, because that speed, you know, we talked a little bit when we did some prep around for you, for your map, when we're reading your map, it's not just about your individual patterns. It's that you've actually got four that make each other stronger. So that will feel very dominant. So, and we talked a little bit about that will be your biggest strength. So that is very likely the exact thing that enabled you to pull something like that off. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody who had less of that, that action piece and the pace probably wouldn't have been able to do that or maybe even wouldn't have conceptualized trying to do that. So let's talk about the festival. You got 18,000 people through the gates in a seven week period and you only had four months from when you got the go ahead to when you did that. Talk to us a little bit about how you did that because that's an amazing achievement. I know you talked about maybe this was one of those times that that your team sort of said to you, are you sure we're going to do this? Are you joking? Um, But I'm interested to know what behaviours you think were behind that, what some of the game changers were for that, that other people can apply because that's a huge achievement. And what were some of the things that you think enabled you to do that? So I think it was a combination of things. One, I think, was just blind faith. (laughs) So I don't think (laughs) I knew then what I knew now about what's involved, I probably may not have attempted to pull off what we did. Um, So I think it actually worked in my favour that I didn't fully understand what we were going to have to do. So yes, we run events. um, Yes, we've done mini festivals for clients, family fun days, um, you know, big corporate events. But there's a whole world of difference between that and a big public ticketed event over that period of time and that scale. Um, So I think... I didn't really fully understand what I was getting myself into. I had a vision. I knew what I wanted to create, um, but didn't necessarily understand all the moving parts that needed to happen to, to make that, to make that um, happen. And I think that was a good thing. Um, and I think I, I'm a big believer in if you want to do something, from the very first event that I ever did a decade ago, I had no experience other than a, um, a, a wedding in France that I'd organised for myself, um, my own mm-hmm. wedding, um, of, of organising an event really. But I just decided that I was going to do a 400-person charity ball because that's what I wanted to do. And I set the date. And once that was set, there was no going back. And I think it was very similar with the festival. Once I'd committed to it, once we would told people we were doing it, once we'd booked the, the dates in and the venues in and things started to happen, it had to keep going with it. Um, and I just believed inherently that we could do it. So, and we could. <laughs> so, um, and we then did. About, <laughs> well, we did, yeah. So then it was about taking people on that journey with me. And I think... You know, I've seen this in in leaders that I've worked for and I've seen this with me and my team and other examples. But because I believed in it so much, people just came on that journey with me because there was no other outcome. It was going to happen. So they just followed. (laughs) Lucky Lucky for me and got behind it. And I think that's, you're saying lucky for you, but that's a sign of really fantastic leadership where, you know, we talk a lot about different leadership styles and there are many, but where where people connect to a vision and you make them connect to that goal and that big picture piece 
and they follow you and and it's actually, they follow you in the direction to achieve it. And I think that's like a fantastic example of, of leadership, but also where you, you know, if you put a day in, like we talk a lot about goal setting, if you put the day in and you, you see where you're going and then having the people around you who can then support that and look at the how and the what and the, put the process in place and all the detail, it's then that, that everything joins up together and you, you're all following in the same direction. How easy is it for you to find people who in your team can complement your sort of your patterns and your skill set? Yeah, it's something I've become a lot more mindful of um, as I've developed through my career. Um, So I think earlier on in my career, I would just try and find people who are like me. Um, And I still have a tendency to do that if I don't think about it properly, because those people are easier to work with because they think like you and they operate like you and your expectations are met. But what they don't necessarily do is complement your shortcomings or your weaknesses. So I'm a lot more mindful of that. and, you know, from a festival point of view, I was a lot more mindful of that from year one going into year two and thinking, right, where are the gaps? Where do we need support? What are we great at? What am I great at? What am I not so great at? Who do I need to bring in to complement or to plug those gaps? And I do the same thing um, within my team here, which which makes a huge difference to not only to the success of the business, but also to the way I operate and how effective I am and also my stress levels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> having people who can come in behind you and almost that piece around we're going to you need this balance because you talked before around that almost that commitment to the goal right we're going to do it we've booked the date we're doing it and that's a great example of how if you really want to achieve big things you can't go into it with one foot in one foot out you've got to go all in and be confident in the ability but then to have people who can come alongside you and almost put the detail behind some of that vision let's talk a little bit about year two um and almost talk us through the thought process behind not continuing to do that that festival afterwards and we know that obviously for you it was it was different to the the client-based work that you do talk to us a little bit about that because it's often this piece with leaders where we make brave decisions in businesses but when you're goal focused and you're high initiation like you are sometimes to decide not to do something or for something not to work out the way that you wanted it to can feel like this failure but actually having the courage to say you know what this this has deviated from where it was meant to. This isn't what we want to do moving forward is often the bravest thing that a leader can do. Can you talk us through a little bit about what happened in in year two and sort of where that, what that led you to? Yeah, it was a weird thing for year two. So we did, we did year one. And for me personally, I'd kind of ticked the box. I'd said, do you know what? I want to put this social distance festival on. I want people to be able to go to something regardless of restrictions. I've got a vision for it. I want to create a brand. I want to create an experience. Um, And it was kind of tick, tick, tick for all those things. And I was really proud of being able to create something from a public point of view, a brand that in such a short space of time, so many people got behind. So for me personally, that's and also I'm painting the positives of it, but it was hugely stressful. It was a 1.2 million pound festival, um, which is a which is a lot of exposure really for a small business. And you know the financial responsibility of that was was enormous. Um, so I definitely didn't come through year one unscathed from a stress point of yeah. view. Um, so then for me, year two, it was a real mix of emotions for me because. I personally didn't want to go into year two. I 
done what I'd set out to do and I'd enjoyed it and mm. I kind of had enough at that point. However, we had some investors that I didn't want to let down. We'd, Although we'd got through year one and it was great and we weren't really expecting to make a big profit, um, we, we hadn't, I hadn't returned their investment. Um, it was meant to be a one-year project anyway with a review in it. Um, but I kind of went against my own gut um, and and went into the second year to please other people, essentially. Yeah. Um, I also mm-hmm. believed it was a great event. I believe we could do we could improve on it, which we did. We reduced a lot of the cost. We improved the experience. We It was a better festival in year two. We had more people visit. And we also had some interest from a really big player in the marketplace, which actually had that have come off, um, would have been a totally different situation. And maybe I would look back on it and think, yeah, I'm really glad that we went into year two. Yeah. But yeah, <laughs> my gut was telling me not to go into year two. Um everything on paper was telling me it was a good idea to go into year two. And, you know, I I kind of went with that and what other people wanted. Um, It was challenging. It was still brilliant as well. Um, From a customer point of view, it was still amazing. Um, And the event was great. But we did make a big loss at the end of it. And that was really difficult to deal with because there weren't small numbers that we were playing with. Um, And... Yeah, there's a big part of me that's inherent in me that at times makes me make the wrong decisions in that I I desperately don't want to let people down. And I'll often put that before myself. Um, And like I said, I I ignored my gut to get there. So there was a big, a lot of learnings for me in year two, both in terms of the business decisions that I made, but also my own decision making as a person and the reasons why I make decisions and what's good for me and what's not good for me. And that's been, you know, from a self-development point of view, it's been great. But we also learned a lot about public events and where we want to be and where we don't want to be. Um, And actually, it made me appreciate the things that I really love. So going into that second year of festivals, some of my team were like, yeah, the festival's coming up again. And I was going, oh, God, the festival's coming up again because I love <laughs> I'm creative. I love the creative part. I love, I love working with clients. I love seeing the dream come to fruition for our clients. I love how happy they are and how it makes them feel. And really in year two, the festival was a venue. Um, and yeah, it really taught me where I want to be and where I don't want to be. Thanks for sharing that. I think a lot of the listeners will be able to resonate with that decision-making process and sometimes where you make a decision and you're doing it for sometimes other people and and wanting to do the right thing. And um, I think we've all been there before. So yeah, a, a really interesting lesson learned. Talk us through a little bit about how you've balanced that with your team. Because I know when you and I talked, you talked about sometimes the team can't cope with that pace piece with you. But obviously you must have a team that you've almost, whether it's consciously or subconsciously put together that balance some of those things out because there's lots of other things outside of just action that it takes to pull off an event like that with 20,000 people in a year? Yeah, I think um, so when it comes to when it comes to events, you really do need that balance because especially for a public ticketed event, because you're balancing, you know, my side of things, which is like the aesthetics, the customer experience, the wow factor, you know, what, how amazing it's going to be. And then there's a counterbalance of, okay, well, how are we safely going to get that amount of people through gates and do all the compliance stuff? So obviously I have that balance within my team for both the festival and also for the events business. And I, I'm finding myself more and more mindful about building a team around me that 
kind of are good at the things that I'm not so good at or strengthen the team um, as opposed to bringing on people on board that are just a carbon copy of me and I've found myself over the years doing both and obviously when people aren't a carbon copy of you it's also then managing people that you're not na- you're not naturally attuned to challenges that come come with that but I think the festival in particular because it was such a large scale operation I would say actually if I was to look back on the successes of it and the things that didn't go so well. That whole piece around, you know, what are the risks, mitigating the risks, you know, not aiming too high, making sure that it's kind of measured and slowly, slowly. I probably could have done with a bit more of that <laughs> within my team for, for we're that. Getting, we're, getting an ins- we're getting an insight here, Rebecca, to how you misbehave. This is called a misbehave <laughs> podcast, but uh, and we say that tongue in cheek, but yeah. Well, that brings us on to your team. So tell us a little bit about what it's like to have you as the leader of a team. Like, Tell us about a time when maybe you've misbehaved with your team. Oh, goodness. (laughs) So I think um, what I have to be careful with with my teams is not being too fast paced, too chaotic, um, expecting everybody else to kind of operate in the way that I do. And that I think, well, I know because I've had feedback from some members of my team on multiple occasions (laughs) that that can be just too much. Um, you know, especially in my earlier career in managing people, um, me thinking it's a really positive thing and we're getting stuff done and I'm throwing instructions and requests all over the place. And then team members going, I can't cope. It's just too much. You're stressing me out. I can't, I can't work at this pace. <laughs> so I think, um, yeah, that's probably how I most misbehave um, around my team. And I have to really check myself and also have an open dialogue with my people on my team so that they can tell me when it's just it's just too much. And they recognize my my patterns and my behaviors now and they're able to kind of feedback on that, I think. I hope well they do anyway. It's almost that bit around giving permission, isn't it? So I think within your team, if people feel like they can give you that feedback or say like the pace is too quick or I need a moment or or sometimes where you might feel a little bit chaotic, it's actually having the the understanding that it's okay for them to give you that feedback. And and we definitely do that with each other and our team because even regardless of hierarchy, it's important because sometimes you're in it and you don't even you don't even recognize it in yourself. Yeah. And I think also some I mean, there've been times when I've said to my team, we're gonna do this, and they're like, Are you joking? <laughs> <laughs> no, we're <gonna> do it. <laughs> so they give me the feedback, but they still, you know, it's also about your team aren't always going to be comfortable with the level of activity or risk or whatever that, that you take as an entrepreneur, but it's also being able to reassure them and take them at the, on that journey at the right pace as well um, to manage that kind of misbehavior on my part. And that's interesting because where we often look at things is we look for balance with your team for you as a leader, which sounds like you've got. So you've got almost those executors in your team that make sure, for example, how how are people going to get through gates safely, all of that sort of stuff. But then the other layer that we often look at is where's your balance, either at a leadership team level, or if it's just you, where potentially could you bring in outside influence that's opposite to you? And that's then more of what you were mentioning around the risk profile, because actually you've then got somebody who we often say with teams, it's great to balance you out with your team, but sometimes they don't have that almost that permission to play to say, 
hang on, this might be too big of an idea. They'll go and do the execution, but it's sometimes about that real senior level challenge and yeah. input. And we definitely had to put that around our business. We're very similar to you from a behavioral perspective. And we deliberately brought in a non-exec that is the total opposite to us to because we've got the balance in the team from an execution standpoint. But what we didn't have was that that senior level challenge to say, hang on, you guys might just be rushing off down something. And have you thought about all of these different things? So yeah, yeah. definitely. It's definitely that balance that's needed. Or, or in the form of a coach, or we've got yeah. a coach. And also I know that, uh, Rebecca, your your dad, uh, your late dad was a was a um Huge a, a, a counselor. And um that's that's something that you've talked about openly around like the influence that he had on your life. You've had quite a lot of you know, adversity thrown at you and you talk about it so, so openly. Um, you know, you mentioned breast cancer earlier. How do you, how do you keep your resilience levels high? You've got obviously a mix of patterns that mean that you will naturally give sort of the glass half full attitude and, and, and you'll move through stuff. But as a result, and I know I definitely personally suffer with this, sometimes you can end up moving through things too quickly or not taking the time to process that. Um, and, and I've got people around me that help me sort of press pause sometimes to stop and think and process. What's your coping mechanisms for, for kind of riding the storm and also just coping with your resilience levels, but as a leader, making sure that you are, are also processing the stuff that's going on around you? Yeah. So... Yeah, you mentioned my dad and that was, um, you know, in the last, in the last five years, I've lost my mum, my dad and my older sister. So three kind of key people who would be an outside support mechanism to me. Uh, More from a self-care point of view and a personal point of view. um, Although my dad probably knew absolutely everything there was to know about my business. Anybody that was associated with my business, anything that we were doing Mm -hmm. (laughs) about five times a day. I do, act, and that's something that's that has left a bit of a gap in my life. And um, I've been really aware of over the last couple of years. And I do now have, as you said, coaches um, and a mentor that kind of helped me with that side of things. And I think it's really important to have somebody in those positions as well for me that I respect as well. I respect them. I respect their opinion um, that they're wise because I can be a little bit of a know-it-all at times. What have you learned about reflection? And what are some of the things that work for you that maybe people with similar patterns to you might be able to apply? So I think in terms of that kind of stop, pause, reflect time, for me, it's become almost a non-negotiable. So um, it's less of a a learning, I guess. It's learning about myself, but it's more of a... um, a necessary part of my life now because I know that what the impact is of not doing that. So I have to build those those points into my life because I've realized that I'm not superwoman and that if I don't, mm-hmm. I'm going to kind of break, fall over, uh, explode, <laughs> whatever that outcome <laughs> might be. And are there any things in particular that you do that you find work really well for you taking that headspace and taking that time out? Yeah, I think as I've got older, I've I've realized that I need I just need time to myself. And that's that time is silence. It's me time. It's nobody around. It's nobody interrupting me. And what I use that time for might be it's whatever I feel I need at that at that point in time. So it could be reading, could be a podcast, could be listening to music. I'm a massive fan of listening to different types of music depending on the mood I'm in, doing my gratitude, um, doing my kind of intentions, 
um, reading something that's inspirational, do my angel cards. It could I have like a real suite of things that I call on um, and I know what I need in, at any point in time. But yeah, when I was younger, I really feel like I couldn't spend any time on my own. I hated being on my own. And now I really appreciate and enjoy that time on my own. And I really need it. And I think that's interesting around like that time on your own. Sometimes people, and this is where it's really fascinating around personality versus behavior, because sometimes people almost think that if you have more pieces in you that make you slightly more introverted that actually you just naturally crave time when we look at your behavioral patterns probably what drove some of that not wanting to be on your own thing was less around just needing people around you but actually busyness because that high initiation and that almost the pace of just one thing to the next to the next to the next whereas for someone who's maybe more driven by that external piece of just wanting lots of people around them it might be less about being busy but just wanting to be surrounded by people so it's interesting how that can come up for different people it's but it's it's so valuable because what we say with with your dominant patterns are that they're the, they're the fabulous things about you. You know, they're the things that actually those those four patterns combined that we talked about where you've got those four dominances, they will be what has got you through some of the things that you've been through for sure. But as with everything, where there's a strength, there's a blind spot. And sometimes it's about what you're now consciously doing, almost taking, taking the behavior off autopilot because your autopilot behavior will always be, the action, the just add more to my plate, keep busy, the distraction piece. And actually that that deliberate conscious pause of like, yeah, but I can't, I'm going to burn myself out if I don't counterbalance this in some way. I thought it was really interesting that you'd shared um, when you had your breast cancer journey. And this is all in line with, with this and almost that glass half full piece that I think you said something like, you know, I never, I never had a moment in that where I did the whole why me? And that almost kind of the self-pity piece. Can you expand a little bit on that and kind of your thought process as you were going through some of that stuff? Yeah, I think part of that was that it's a strange thing that um, you find out you've got cancer and actually it's everyone around you that falls apart. So I found myself supporting yeah. everybody else. <laughs> um, in the initial stages of telling people anyway. I think it's not my natural disposition to feel sorry for myself. Um, so I think yeah. I kind of that was an automatic thing really rather than a mindful thing. I also had a lot of thinking time, which I found really, really useful. I'd been through a divorce um, in advance of that, uh, which I'd found really traumatic and I'd found it, it, it hit me really hard. I definitely wasn't one of those people who, you know, the relationship ended. We'd been together a long time before we got married even and before we were divorced but it took it took a lot out of me emotionally I think and I think I'd gotten to this hamster wheel of just working 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 100 miles an hour again putting it into a box and having breast cancer and having to pause and whilst I was having treatment gave me that thinking time and what I kind of the conclusion I came to is that actually this is the universe knocking me back on track. It's somebody saying to me, you are on the wrong path. You've got all this angst, all this upset. Um, You're not being kind to yourself. You're running at a million miles an hour. You're doing a job that you don't even like. You're on the wrong path. Stop. So it almost felt like um, a blessing to me in some ways. And I feel like my life, me as a person and my life changed for the better as a result of having breast cancer, which seems a strange thing to say. 
and also my priorities. I've done some amazing things since having breast cancer that led me on to working with um, Breast Cancer Now and now working with Prevent Breast Cancer. And they're things that are really good for my soul and are where where I should be sitting, uh, which wouldn't have happened had it not been for my experience with breast cancer. It's almost like that. It was almost an interruption in your life to Mm -hmm. make you stop, pause and think. And I think, you know, post that, I'm sure you've been more mindful. Often those life events can make you then more mindful about creating opportunities to stop and think. Laura and I, I mean, Laura's particularly good at doing that with me when she can spot it in me. You know, she'll she'll say like, you need to, it's okay not to be okay. Or, you know, let's sit down and have a talk about this because that glass half full, particularly, I mean, sometimes it can be like you, you don't want to say any bad, you don't want to say any bad in people and you don't want to say anything risky in things. You, you think you'll find a way or a solution and that's a beautiful quality to have, but sometimes it can be just, it can be destructive or it can just hinder you in, in many ways. But that, that, that natural pause or, you know, it's breaking habits as well. If, if that's not a natural thing for you because of your patterns, how can you create little interruptions? I mean, I use journaling for it too. So does Laura and where you have to actually take five minutes out of your day to, to pause and think about what's been good about it. What's been challenging. What have you learned? Like just encouraging yourself to take a breath. Yeah. The big thing for me, I think is around gut as well. So that's something that I've been, um, I've finally entered into therapy to process all the grief and the things that have happened to me, which has been amazing. Um, but one of the kind of recurring themes in there is about trusting your gut, which I think, again, journaling really helps with getting all of that out there and figuring things out. But um, if I look at the times when I feel like I, something has happened, which maybe doesn't seem like a good thing at the time, but knocked me back to where I should be, where I should be, it's always been something that my gut's probably told me. Like my gut told me that, you know, going to work for that company was not going to be a great idea. It's not going to align with your values. Um, you're not going to enjoy it there (laughs) and then you know similarly with the festival in year two we went into the festival in year two I didn't really want to but I felt like I owed it to the other investors to do a second year my gut was telling me that it wasn't what I wanted to do I didn't enjoy the whole experience and actually the net result was we didn't we we made a big loss on it in the second year and the you know the fallout from that was was probably one of the worst things I've ever been through Um, but it's um, again I think the reason the universe wasn't working with me is because it's not what I was supposed to be doing. And it's almost like, again, it was like, yeah, get back on track. You weren't supposed to be doing this. So the universe is not going to work with you because you're doing the wrong thing. Um, And it was another lesson to myself that actually you need to listen to your gut and you need to do the things that you know are right for you and not the things you think, not question yourself. I think over the years I've questioned myself a lot and thought, oh, you're just giving up or you're just not trying hard enough or you're just, and actually you just need to follow your gut and it'll take you to the right place. Yeah. And that gut piece is so interesting because I think sometimes when you've got when you've got behaviors that are pacey, <laughs> you almost that the your gut can only tell you something if you give it time to tell you that. And sometimes when you're so busy and there's so much action, you can almost just like override that. That it's like you get this tiny little niggle and then you're like, oh, it's nothing, on to the next thing. Whereas when people are more reflective, often they've got the opposite end of the challenge. They feel their gut, but then they sit in it for a long period of time. So it's almost that finding that 
that medium of that which sounds like exactly what you found around putting in those deliberate pauses where you can listen to some of that stuff but I think that's a really good mm-hmm. sort of culmination but to sort of wrap up obviously you're super goal driven you're you're constantly looking at new things so what's next for you what's kind of on your what's your next big goal yeah so I think We've got an amazing business in Saving Grace Events, so it, it's developing that. It's working with more of the clients that we love working with. It's growing that. It's um, creating a culture that I would want to be part of within our team, and that's really important to me. And increasingly, I want to focus on some of the almost like passion projects. So I've yeah. been through so much in my life. I think um, I have a real thing about women and female development and women not achieving their potential or not thinking not giving themselves permission to. Um, Also, I think women have a lot to deal with in life and we deal with things in a different way. So I think I want to find a way of using everything I've been through to support other women within their journeys and whether that's sharing my story or coaching or mentoring or um, coming onto podcasts, um, that kind of personal kind of passion side is really important to me. So I'm starting to do a lot more around that alongside the Saving Grace event stuff. And then, of course, we've got Barlaston, the estate, um, ticking along as well. It's a lot to be getting on with. Lots of busy. <laughs> well, we really appreciate you coming on to our podcast, Rebecca. Thanks so much for, for your time and being so open and sharing so freely with us. It's really appreciated. Oh, thanks for having me. Thank you. Let's wrap up with some takeaways from the episode with Rebecca. Rebecca talked about when she experienced all of the different losses that she's been through, how she just moved on and made herself busier. And that can often happen when you're high initiation. So it's important to remember if you have that bias for action and you go through situations like loss or something that is going to require you to process that you give yourself the time to do that. We then talked about the value of listening to your gut and actually in the festival decision that Rebecca talked about that she had a gut feeling about not going into that in the second year but she ignored it. So it's making sure that you listen when that tells you something and sometimes that can be driven by a behaviour. For her it was driven by that wanting to please the people that were involved But sometimes you've got to hierarchy yourself and what your gut is telling you and move on that. And lastly, we talked about despite all of the difficult things that Rebecca has been through, that actually she came out with a completely different outlook that drove a positive change in her life in terms of setting up her businesses. So it's just a little reminder for us all that really positive change can come from difficult situations. Thank you for listening to Misbehave. Follow us so you don't miss out on other episodes. 